And now please turn to our sermon text this morning, Psalm 44. And again, please continue to give your attention to God's word as it is read. Psalm 44. To the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. But you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. All of this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, in 1981, a Jewish rabbi named Harold Kushner wrote a book titled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the book attempts to give us an answer to the age-old issue called theodicy or the problem of evil. And basically, the question goes like this. Why, if God is all good and all powerful, is there evil and suffering in the world? And Kushner's conclusion was that God is indeed all good, but is unable to stop the suffering in the world. In other words, Kushner answers the problem of evil by limiting God's power, by limiting God's omnipotence. Now, to be sure, theodicy, or the problem of evil, is a difficult question. It is one of the most difficult questions that a Christian has to deal with. For example... Why does a faithful pastor lose his wife and children in a car accident? 
Why does a loving wife lose her unbelieving husband for sharing her faith? Why does a promising young Christian athlete have his life cut short due to stage four cancer? Or as we prayed this morning, why does a faithful church seeking to do the will of God, seeking to serve its congregation, its community, face the persecution of the governing authorities in their state? These are hard things to deal with and hard things to help people through. And again, that's why God has inspired King David and others to write the Psalms. The Psalms, as I said last week, give us God-inspired words to the deepest feelings in the lives of God's people. They allow us to emote. They allow us to understand. And they give us words that we can pray back to God when things seem to be falling apart. And as we look this morning at Psalm 44... We're going to see the psalmist here help us to cope with the fact that bad things do, in fact, happen to God's people. Now, this psalm can be broken down into three movements, if you will. In verses one through eight, we're going to see remembering past acts as the psalmist considers what God has done for his people in the past. And then in verses nine through 20 or 16, We're going to see lamenting present suffering as the psalmist now, after remembering what God has done for his people in the past, is lamenting what is happening to him in the here and now. And then in verses 17 through 26, we're going to see hoping in future uh, deliverance as the psalmist looks forward to God's deliverance, seeking his help in time of need. And the theme or the big idea for this morning is when it feels like God has forsaken you, we need to remember the past and hope for the future. When it feels like God has forgotten us, when he has forsaken us, we need to remember the past and hope for the future. Well, like the psalm we looked at last week, Psalms 42 and 43, which I said are really one psalm. This psalm begins the same way. It says, To the chief musician, a contemplation or a maskil of the sons of Korah. And that word contemplation or maskil is putting this in the sense that this is an instruction psalm. We are to learn something from this psalm. And also similar to Psalms 42 and 43, we are given no historical information that places this psalm uh, or when this psalm was written or any kind of indication as when in the Old Testament this Happen or what events inspired the psalm. Now, we looked at the sons of Korah last week. The sons of Korah, uh, contrary to popular belief, were not an Old Testament uh, praise and worship band, but they were a group of Levites who assisted in the temple worship during the time of David and beyond. So they, these were Levites who were particularly in charge of worship in the tabernacle or worship in the temple. Now, as we'll see also a little bit later, this is a lament psalm. So scholars of the psalms like to break up the psalms and saying these are psalms of thanksgiving. These are psalms of praise. These are psalms of whatever. This is a psalm of lament. And in this, you're going to see, and if you, as we read through it, you probably heard the psalmist lamenting his situation before God, what is happening to him in the world. And these psalms are very beneficial for us as God's people of all ages because they show us that it is okay to cry out to God. 
It is okay to lift our cares and concerns before God. It is okay to complain, if you will, in a sense, to God. In fact, it is okay to be very real, very raw with God when the troubles we face in day-to-day life seem too much to bear. As we look at this lament psalm, we're going to see it kind of go back and forth between I, me, my, and, and we and us. So this gives us the, idea, the impression also that the psalmist is not only in, uh, lamenting personally, but he's also expressing a communal uh, lament, a lament for God's people. Now the psalm begins with a remembrance in verse 1, where the psalmist begins saying, we have heard with our ears and our fathers have told us. The psalmist is remembering the stories of redemption of God's saving acts in the past. He's remembering these stories from his youth, stories of God passed on from father to son or from parents to children. And this is something that God commanded in the Old Testament. He commanded his people to pass on the stories of what he has done for them in saving them so they would not forget. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, God says to the people, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Referring to the Passover. That you shall say, this is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. The Passover was a remembrance of God's deliverance from the people from Egypt to the promised land. And once there in the promised land, the people were to remember annually what the, what the Lord had done for them in saving them. Similarly, we do this with the Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance, among other things, of the saving acts of Christ on behalf of his people. So even though the people had a written record of God's mighty works, the people were commanded to teach these things to the children. We need to pass these on from generation to generation or else we forget. Now, of all the mighty works God did for the people in the past, the psalmist here is calling to remembrance the stories that were told to him of how God cast out the Canaanites from the land, from the promised land in verses 2 and 3. We're told that the Lord drove out the inhabitants of the land and planted the people in the land. And he drove them out by his right hand in the light of his countenance. So God was very active in driving the Canaanites out of the land and putting the people into the land. In fact, the people of Israel did not win these victories, as they say, by the strength of our arms or by, or by the strength of our bow. But it was God who gave them the victory. And God gave them the victory because God favored them. They were his people, his chosen portion of the peoples of the world. So because of God's acts of redemption of old, the psalmist now can express a confidence that what God did in the past, he can and will do in the present. And we see this in verses 4 through 8. The psalmist acknowledges God as his king and he calls out to God to command victories for Jacob. God, what you did in the past, do now in the present. Go before our armies. Go before your people and drive your enemies out. Now notice also how the psalmist recognizes God's agency 
in the victory where he says, through you, God, through your work, God, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample our foes. And furthermore, the psalmist recognizes that it isn't by his own might that victory comes. He says he will not trust in his bow. His sword will not save him in the day of trouble. It is not through my strength of arms. It is not through the size of my army. It's not for the number of chariots we have. It is God who gives us the victory. It is the Lord who saves and it is the Lord in whom he will boast in praise. Now, in order to be victorious in our own personal battles, our battles as a church, also we first need to remember God's mighty works in our lives thus far. The God who saved us in Jesus Christ is the very same God who is working in us by his Holy Spirit this very day. God doesn't just save us and then let us fend for ourselves. He's like, okay, I covered your sin debt. Now go ahead and do whatever. No, he works in us by his Holy Spirit. He guides us. He is sanctifying us and he's preserving us until the day of his return. God saves us, is saving us, and will save us every day of our lives. But this is something we need to remember. We need to remember as I like to say so often, we need to remember because we forget, <laughs> right? We are forgetful people. We tend to fall into a what have you done for me lately, God, kind of mentality. And that's what Satan tries to get us to do, right? He tries to get us to think that God is done with us, that he won't forgive us, that we've fallen out of his favor. Have you ever committed a, a sin that is so grievous, at least in your own heart, and you feel, God will never forgive me for this? Like, I am surely cast out from this one. There is no way God will save me from this one. Well, the point is nothing can be further from the truth. When God, when Christ died on the cross, he died for your sins that you've committed, the sins that you're committing right now, and the sins that you will commit tomorrow, and the day after and the day after that. And that's why the psalmist refers to the lessons he learned from his forefathers. The great redemptive acts of the Lord must be taught to each generation. And we must also reinforce in our own minds what with God's redemptive acts on our behalf. We need to continually remember and refocus and retool our mind to remember everything God has done for us, which is why reading scripture regularly is such a, a, a strong thing to do, to reinforce these truths in our hearts and minds. But secondly, we also need to recognize that it is God who saves us, not us. Right? Just as the psalmist didn't trust in his bow or his sword, we are to trust in our own strength. As David himself sang in another psalm, 124 verse 8, he says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Not our help is in the strength of my right arm. Or my help is in how sharp my sword is. Or my help is in how big my army is. Or maybe put it in our own context. My help is not in how big my bank account is. My help is not in how many people I know in high places. No. My help is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
It is through the power of God's Holy Spirit working in and through his word that we ultimately achieve any victory in our lives. We'll look a little bit more of this later. But when despair begins to work in your heart, we need to remember God's past acts of redemption in our life. Now, earlier we noted that this is a psalm of lament, and here we see why in verses 9 through 14. Note the constant refrain of attributing the psalmist's lament to the actions of God, where he says, You have cast us off. You do not go out. You make us to turn back. You have given us up. You have scattered us. You sell your people. You make us a reproach, a scorn. You make us a byword. Just as it is God who gave Israel the victory in times past, it is God who has, at least in this case, from the psalmist's point of view, seemingly cast off his people. Now, hearing this, does this make sense? Does it make sense that God would cast off his people, his chosen people, his covenant people? The psalmist is recollecting God's providence in the past seems Shocked now that God's apparent abandonment of his people here in the present. Whereas God gave them the victory in the past, now he casts them off. Whereas before God's right hand went before them, he has now made his people to turn back from the enemy. Whereas before the light of his countenance, his face shone on his people, he has now given up his people uh, like sheep intended for food. Whereas before God favored Israel, he has sold his people for nothing. He has taken a loss on the sale, it says there, for nothing and made them a reproach to their neighbors. Now, why? Why would God seemingly forsake his people? The psalmist cannot fathom a reason why. As we see in verses 15 and 16, all the psalmist knows is that dishonor is continually before him. Now, normally, in the past, when God refuses to fight for his people, it's usually in response to the sin of the people. In fact, consider a very uh, prominent example in Numbers 14. Here, the people of Israel are on their way to the promised land, and they're there. They're on the doorstep, and they're about to go into the promised land. And they say, well, let us send two spies in the land to spy out the land. So they choose, or uh, ten spies, or twelve spies, one from each uh, tribe. So they send the 12 spies in the land and then 10 of them come back and they give an evil report. And the people fear. They think, well, God can't help save us from the giants in the land and their fortified cities, so we're not going to go in. So as a, as a result, God then sentences them, sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, when the people hear this, they're like, oh, well, I don't want to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Let's go into the land and take it. And then Moses says, no, you can't go now. Do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Their sin abrogated God's favor on them in a sense that if they were to go into the promised land now, God would not be with them. And as a result, the Amalekites and the Canaanites drove them back. Another example of this comes in Joshua 7. As the Jews are conquering the promised land. They had taken over Jericho. Now they go on to the city of Ai. 
But when they defeated Jericho, they were commanded not to take any of the spoil of the, of the city, but to devote it all to destruction. However, Achan had a different idea in mind. It's like, I'm going to keep some for myself. So he keeps them for himself. And then when it came, comes time to conquer the city Ai, they were repelled by a very small contingent of defenders. And Joshua laments and says, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. The point being, it was usually a result of some great national sin that the Lord would refuse to go out with Israel's armies in battle. Now, as we'll see in a moment, there is apparently no great national sin at this time. Yet the psalmist here in Psalm 44 laments because God has cast off his people. Now, maybe you can recall times in your life or at least you felt like maybe the Lord has cast you off. I mean, does it feel at times that you've been given up by the Lord? We can even expand this to our church. Have you ever felt as maybe God has forgotten Emmanuel Reformed Church? Why isn't our church growing? Why does it feel as if our, maybe our best days are behind us? But not just our church, but the church as a whole. I mean, it really seems as if Christian influence in our country is dwindling and dwindling rapidly. More and more, it seems as if Christianity is a reproach, a byword, a derision. Too many times we've become a joke, something to be ridiculed. And maybe as a result of that, we're not as open as we should be about our faith. Maybe we hide that because we don't want to be abused or attacked. And it may seem this way, even though you, the church, or Christianity as a whole isn't guilty of violating God's covenant. Again, I, I look at this church in California. What have they done wrong? All they wanted to do is just gather for worship, yet the, the, the authority of the state is coming down upon them. Maybe they too can feel as if God has cast them off. So why? Why does it feel as if God at times takes his hand off the wheel, in a sense? And this is not an easy question to answer but we do know the biblical teaching on trials, right? Trials aren't always the result of personal or corporate sin. Think of Job, right? Or think of the man born blind. When the disciples see the man born blind, they ask Jesus, who's, you know, why is he blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, eh, you know, none of the above. You got the wrong answer there, okay? It's because the glory of God is about to be displayed. So trials don't come upon us because we've, necessarily sinned. But trials are meant to refine us. Trials are meant to strengthen our faith. And trials are used to witness to the watching world that we are Christians. And though the psalmist here laments that it seems as if God has cast off his people, he doesn't lose hope. He doesn't lose faith. And this too is instructive for us, for it can be easy to lose faith when it seems as if the weight of the world has fallen upon us. So not only do we need to remember God's past saving acts for us in Christ, we also need to not lose hope that the God who saved us in Christ will persevere us and preserve us in our faith until the day of Christ. 
That's the promise. We need to hold on to that promise. Well, now let us look at verses 17 through 26 as we see now hoping in future deliverance. And here we see the psalmist declare that all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. All of this that was coming upon the people of Israel was coming upon them even though they have not dealt falsely with the covenant. All of this was coming upon the people of Israel even though their hearts had not turned back from the Lord. And this presents us with an inescapable truth that we find in Scripture, namely, bad things can happen to God's people. Being a member of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament didn't shield them from being exposed to the taunts and persecutions of their enemies. And similarly, being a member of the church isn't a guarantee of your best life now. I mean, if you're thinking you can come to Jesus and your life will be all peaches and cream, you better think again. It's not that way. The Bible doesn't promise that at all. The promises of God to his people aren't, come to me and your life will be trouble-free. Rather, it's come to me and God says, I will go with you through your troubles. What does David say in the 23rd Psalm, verse 4? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say, yea, though you keep me from going into the valley of the shadow of death. Yea, thank you, God, for the sign that says, this way, valley of shadow of death, don't go there. No, he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they give me comfort. God doesn't promise to keep us from trouble. God promises to go with us through the trouble. And we also need to, need to get rid of the thinking that bad times only come, come upon us when we sin. This isn't true either. As we said, the blind man didn't sin. Job hadn't sinned, yet God allowed Satan to afflict him. Joseph hadn't sinned, yet he was sold into Egypt. David hadn't sinned, yet he was persecuted by Saul. The apostles hadn't sinned, yet the world was against them. And more importantly, Jesus, our Lord, was sinlessly perfect, yet the world put him to death. Now, suffering is to be expected for God's people. It was true during Old Testament times, it is true during New Testament times, and it is true now. And here in Psalm 44, the psalmist proclaims his innocence and the innocence of his people. And in verses 20 and 21, where he pleads to God, search his heart and see if there's any hidden sin or idolatry. The psalmist declares that the people have not turned to foreign gods. We have not forgotten you, Lord. We haven't haven't sold ourselves into idolatry. And if we had, you would know because you search our hearts. And here in verse 22 is the heart of the matter. In verse 22 where he says, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. It is for the Lord's sake that Israel was being killed all day long. In other words, for the people of God, for the Christian, persecution comes with the territory. 
And this falls in line with what Jesus calls his disciples to discern their motives for following him, right? If you follow me, you recognize the world's going to hate you because the world hated me. Following Jesus isn't a picnic. It isn't a walk in the park. It is a life of what? It is a life of denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. It is a life of being willing to be killed all day long. It is a life of being led as sheep for the slaughter. But, my favorite word, but there is hope. There is hope in verses 23 through 26 where the psalmist cries out twice to God to awake, awake, arise, redeem. Despite the current circumstances of God's people, the only place the psalmist can turn to is to God. And why? Because the psalmist remembers God's past acts of deliverance. God has saved his people in the past. God is the one who keeps and makes, makes and keeps promises. That means God is the one who will deliver his people now and in the days to come. Notice, too, the desperation in the psalmist's voice where he says, Do not cast us off forever. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the dust. I mean, these are words of hopelessness. Yet despite all of this, the psalmist pleads with the Lord, Redeem us for your mercy's sake. Redeem us for the sake of your unbreakable covenant love. Now, it's interesting that this psalm does not end with an answer from God. The psalmist pours his heart out before God, but we do not see an answer from the Lord. The psalmist pleads to God to deliver him and to deliver Israel, but we do not hear God's response. And when we're going through that valley of the shadow of death, we can plead to God to deliver us, but we need to realize that God's timetable for answering our prayers isn't always going to align with our timetable for answering our prayers. And we have to be okay with that. It doesn't mean that God has failed. It just means that we need to persevere. And there are two responses when it feels as if God has cast us off. We can get bitter or we can get better. And the psalmist here, Psalm 44, chooses to get better. He chooses to place his hope in God. He doesn't choose to get bitter, lamenting the circumstances of his life. No, he chooses to continue to place his hope in God because he knows God is the one who saves. He focuses and places all his hope on his future deliverance. Well, one of the worst things that can happen to us is to suffer for no apparent reason. And here in Psalm 44, the psalmist laments that God has apparently cast off his people even though they hadn't done anything wrong. And this is a feeling that is common to God's people of all ages. We can ask ourselves, why does it seem like God is far from us? We can search our hearts and find no grievous sin that would warrant God's fatherly discipline. We can look around us and discern no sin we've committed against another. Yet it can still feel as if God maybe has cast us off. We can look at our church and say, why isn't God blessing us? We as church officers, your pastor, your elders, your deacons, can, can see that we're preaching the gospel to the best of our ability. 
We as church members can search and see that we're loving one another and our neighbors as well as we can. Yet it still seems as if our church isn't growing. We could look at the church around the world and wonder, why are they facing such fierce persecution? All they're doing is preaching the good news of the gospel. All they're doing is sharing the love of Jesus with a lost and dying world. And that's when we need to remember God's past acts of salvation. The God who saved us is the same God who sustains us. God hasn't changed and neither has the world. The world hates God. The world hates Jesus. And so it's going to hate us. But what this psalm calls us to do is to cry out to the Lord in prayer. Pray for God's relief for our suffering. Pray for God's revival of our church. Pray for God's preservation of his people around the world. Pray for God's deliverance. In fact, we also need to remember that suffering isn't always a result for something we've done wrong. In fact, it may be because of something we've done right. (laughs) Suffering for something we've done right. The Apostle Paul quotes from this psalm in Romans 8.36, which is why I read that earlier. Paul was a tireless missionary for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was well acquainted with persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ. And our union with Christ guarantees that as Christ suffered, we too will share in his sufferings. But it also guarantees that as Christ was exalted, so too we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation will be exalted with him. And that's why Paul can say at the end of Romans 8, yet in all these things, all of these sufferings, all of these persecutions, we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray.